This is a Strategist, episode 807. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, what is going on? What isn't going on, Zane? Is there anything not going on in the world right now? Yeah, there was no rally going on for Trump outside of the Tulsa <laughs> arena. <laughs> Uh, oh. 6,200 people. Have you guys seen online the, the showing the uh, the same arena f- for the Wiggles? Like it's the Wiggles versus <laughs> the Wiggles. I can't reconcile that people show up for a Trump rally in the same city that they show up for the Wiggles. I guess only 6,200. So I guess that's the point you're trying to make. This is the point I'm trying to make. I guess Trump was a little too juvenile. <laughs> I, my God. Carter, you have said on multiple occasions that the end of the world is here. Does this clustering of, of things going on this week just, is this just the beginning of the end? Or are we going to you know, get hilarious. off that train? I have, I, I have renewed optimism. You know, everything coming together at one point, it just kind of makes me feel like maybe this is a, a period at the end of a sentence and maybe we can move forward. I, I'm, I'm renewed in my optimistic, uh, as I always am, as people always comment, Carter, how come you're so optimistic? Well, this this feels optimistic to me. The, the Tulsa, Oklahoma rally has made me feel uh, somewhat optimistic that we have a future as humanity. Well, you know what? Let's take that and let's go into our first segment. Our first segment, sponsored by KKK Pop. Oh, there's so much going on there. That was actually probably, I just want to say, beautifully constructed on my part. For those who know, you know. Um, So Donald Trump is holding his rally. Some may call it a white nationalist rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He promised, of course, uh, a million people that wanted to go. Uh, he then said, uh, this was two cameras a couple of days before, that uh, there was 19,000 people allowed in the arena, uh, another fifteen or 20,000 people outside, uh, but that, you know, still the 995,000 other people just would not be able to come in, and he apologized to them in advance. Turns out, Corey, as you said, 6,200 people in a 19,000-seat arena. Um, first of all, before we get started on what the hell stagecraft is, because we should discuss that, uh, general thoughts on what happened? Well, there there's so many competing theories out there, but I mean, fundamentally, what happened was they raised expectations sky high, and they 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 fucking failed. And I think this is probably where you're going to go with stagecraft. But I'm just going to say it right now. When, one of the uh, like the, the rule of political advance is that uh, you get a room that's half the size of what you think you need. Uh, because empty rooms look bad. You know, you jam 100 people into a 50-person space, you jam 200 people into a 100-person space, and so on and so forth going up. Um, 6,200 people in a 19,000-person space, and in fact, having an overflow space that you have people taking pictures of you taking down because there's so few people there, that's about as tragic as it gets uh, when it comes to tour and when it comes to advance. And oh boy, I can only imagine what the conversation was on Air Force One on the flight back. Corey, is this the biggest political stagecraft sort of fail you've seen, period? I, I'd have to rack my brain and think of a worse one, but it's it's up there for sure. Uh, just cavernous, uh, cavernous room, high stakes, big stage. In, in fact, when when you sort of consider that this was supposed to be Trump's big relaunch in, I, I mean, I would really have to scour the history books to see what was worse than this. But but given expectations, moment, all of that, it's pretty bad. 
Carter, uh, you know, Corey was talking about some of the basic rules of political stagecraft. I remember back in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, it was Mitt Romney put up a little bit of a stage in a football theater. Now, it wasn't the whole thing or the football stadium. The whole thing wasn't about sitting in the, in the bleachers, but he just had six or seven rows and he got panned for just selecting the location. This is significantly worse. But but your general thoughts on what you saw last night or didn't see? Well, I mean, the stagecraft was terrible. I mean, you, you, the over promise or under promise over deliver mantra is central to advance. Um, that is the advance mantra. And for those who don't know what advance is, advance are the group of people that, that kind of manage the event logistics. I think the other thing that was remarkable is that six of the advance team for Trump on his campaign actually came down with COVID-19. I mean, it, it just could not have gone worse. I mean, they, they literally, we're catching the, the pandemic by by producing this event. Um, I'm, I'm glad it failed. I mean, I'm glad it failed for two reasons. Number one, egg on the face of Donald Trump just makes me happy. And number two, this we will see less spread of COVID-19 as a result of this debacle than we would have seen if the 42,000 person space outside in the 19,000 person arena had actually been filled. I mean, 60,000 plus uh, watching Donald Trump um, and Mike Pence would have been tragic. That's the other thing, too. We always like to blame this on the Trump organization. This is the full Republican Party. Everybody comes together for the Republican uh, presidential campaigns. Everybody's supposed to be there. And they either walked away from him and allowed him to flail or they they uh, they're as incompetent as uh, as the Trump organizers themselves. You know, Corey, one of the most, I guess, uh, s- symbolically poetic uh, parts of, of last night's rally was cameras panning across this arena and all you'd see is blue seats and you'd see more blue than red. And and you just have the camera panning towards these Republican, whether they be congressmen or senators who also made the trip and just the sheer horror on their face. But the reason I think this was such a big fail was this concept that you'd mentioned uh, up front, which was expectations. And expectations for this were set by uh, Trump campaign manager, Brad Parscale, who went online, said this is the the, the rally of the, of like the century. A million people had registered. I want to talk about how the million people registered. So you have this guy um, who's the campaign manager talking about a million people registering, boosting expectations up until mere hours before this thing is about to get going, is still tooting that horn, saying it's going to be this this epic thing uh, that's going to be executed. Uh, put, I mean, can you put yourself in his head? What do you think he was thinking? I don't think he was. There is no good reason for this. If you're going to have something like that, it would still be better if he said, hey, you know, with everything going on with with COVID, with all of this talk in the media, basically all of the excuses they're now making after the fact, if they had provided them beforehand and said, you know, we're not really thinking the top bleachers will be filled. We're thinking maybe 5,000 people, which, by the way, is still a huge rally. Look at how sad Biden's rallies are. You could have done that. And then people would be saying, wow, Trump managed to exceed his expectations. He got over 6,000 people when he was expecting 5,000. And by the way, if you actually end up with that 100,000 number or whatnot they were expecting, this looks like the biggest event since the Beatles. And um, that would have been one hell of a launch in. But all he managed to do was raise expectations to the point where, like, let's, let's put it this way, Zane. This event would have been a failure if he had twice as many people, yeah. if he had three times as many people, four times as many people, five times as many people, all the way up to 10 times as many people. This event still would have been a failure. 
And that is unconscionable when you're a campaign manager because you are entirely in the world of strategy and expectation at that point. I, I, I don't know. I mean, all, all the rumors are that uh, Trump is a little frustrated with Parscale to begin with, and this is not going to be helping in what I imagine is already a pretty tense situation. Carter, anything to add to the line of what the hell is this campaign manager thinking? I mean, this seems like 101 uh, in, in, in setting expectations to Corey's point, but any insights that you might have or any speculative insights? There's an old rule. It says never, never read your own press releases, right? When you're writing your own releases and you're, and you start getting caught up in your own hype, it, it is the worst that can happen. Um, they got caught up in their hype. They saw all these people and I have no doubt. Let me just say this. I have no doubt that a, a tremendous number of people signed up for this Tulsa, Oklahoma rally. Was it a million people? I don't think so. But I think it very easily could have been over 100,000 people or it could have been 200,000 people who signed up. And I think that when you start seeing those returns on your database and you start seeing all these people who are giving their personal information, who are joining your campaign, it's easy to get caught up in that. And he got caught up in that because he literally doesn't have enough experience to know when he's been being played. He doesn't have the ability to know what the mistakes are because he's never made them before. And most of the time when you rise to this level, you've made all of these mistakes. You don't get to do your first and second campaigns at the presidential side. Corey? Yes. Zane, you want to know the number of events when I was a political organizer I put on in rooms that were way too big? Countless. Embarrassing. Every time it was a fail. Doesn't happen anymore when I put on events because I've learned those lessons the hard way and you learn to manage those expectations. And I think Carter's exactly right. He simply does not have the experience to be playing at this level. And See, Corey, and this is the difference yeah, between you and me. I, I only had one event that had a major feel like fail. You had dozens. And well, you were a I conservative and I, I was I a liberal. A so. Yeah, I guess. A liberal right. in Alberta has a little harder time. You just rent the boardroom when you're a liberal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Boardroom and then with or without table is a game time decision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to go to you on this because Carter just brought up something very interesting. And and, and political data is, is a bit of a theme for, for today's show, if we ever have a theme, which we really never do. Uh, but But in the sense of part of every sort of offline activity on a campaign is as much of a data collection exercise as is your Facebook ad, as is a petition signature. This is a data collection exercise as much as it is having people have bums in seats. And it seems like it was an epic fail on both fronts because not only did they have this fail uh, in the seats, but it seems like we're hearing that the the data may have also not been there in the sense that there's a lot of people going in on, on subreddits, on uh, TikTok, uh, K-pop fans, hence the segment title, uh, that were just going in and mass subscribing to, to getting seats. So can you just comment a little bit about like the, the data and how you see it? Yeah, I don't actually buy that the data was the important thing here. I guess I'll start there. Really? So, let, yeah, let me explain. I'll, I'll take a step back and say that generally speaking, data is very important. You've got to build lists and you get those lists then to become supporters. They're, they're the people that you get out to volunteer. They're the people that you ask to donate. They are the people that you pull to the polls if you can't manage to get them to do those other two things, right? That's how you build your lists. I got to remind you all, we're talking about a rally in Oklahoma. You're not actually worried about losing that. The data is not that valuable to you. It is only for fundraising. I think that's the mm -hmm. one thing I would give you there. But the reality is, this was supposed to be the set piece. This was supposed to be a national communications moment. 
And that's what it was actually about. And today after, then say, no, this was about the data and it's not as bad as you think. And our data was real. And it's really all the things Parscale is saying today. He's basically saying all of this K-pop stuff is a lie. The data is great. And it was really all about the data. It was not really all about the data. That is an after the, after the fact spin. Uh, I think probably for an audience of one, it was, it's probably so that Donald Trump does not fire Parscale because it doesn't really make sense when you think about the fact that Oklahoma's electoral votes are not really in dispute here. Interesting point, Corey Carter. What do you buy what Corey's saying? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't when he started talking, but by the time he brings up Oklahoma, I mean, that is, that's probably the Trump card. Uh, forgive me for using that expression, but he, there is no reason to launch a campaign from a strong state unless you're losing. Um, you, you launch from, from a place that you want to show surprising strength. Uh, that's, that's where you should, you know, they, if they'd launched in, in Pennsylvania, they'd launched in even Florida, um, you know, if they'd launched, but the reason they can't launch in Florida is because they've mismanaged the COVID crisis so poorly. Um, they, you know, they, they can't go to Wisconsin because, you know, the only people going to show up are going to be wearing body armor and AK, you know, AR 15s. Um, this is the. Uh, they went to Oklahoma because they thought they could, they could present a, uh, spectacle and the spectacle failed. Um, the data should have been good as a fundraising list as a million, you know, a, a million new names. And, and I'll disagree with Corey a bit here. A million new names is a million new names. I really don't care where they come from. Uh, they can be making phone calls out of state. They, you know, those people can be turned into to vital volunteers. Uh, obviously we're working on a, uh, virtual campaign structure, uh, for much of this election campaign, putting uh, a million people on a telephone, I'm in. Like, let's go. A million texters, um, a million donors. Like, there's a lot of things you can use a million of in a presidential campaign. Um, turns out they didn't have a million of them. Uh, I, I would be willing to bet if you gave that same list over to Joe Biden's team, it'd be a pretty workable list. And uh, there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of activity that came out of that list. Um, but right now, it's just it's junk and. Uh, you know, Parscal has to throw it away, throw it away. Uh, Corey, you know, you, you, both of you actually mentioned this around skill set. I think Carter, it was you first saying Parscal does not have the skill set to be running this campaign. I want to maybe take this as an opportunity to, to take a step back and talk about the skill set required for campaign management in some ways, because uh, what's interesting about Parscale that many people, especially inside the Republican Party, were celebrating was that he was the digital organizer, the digital lead for Trump in the last election. And of course, the, 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 myth, the myth around Trump and the story, however much you want to believe it, was that digital is what won the day in 2016. So have him having him run the entire campaign seems good on the surface, but probably comes with some deficits. Corey, can you maybe perhaps talk to us about some of the other skill sets required on a campaign, even though we're in this COVID era where digital and virtual are, 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 are much more important? Talk to us about some of the other skill sets that maybe someone like Parscale or someone else who kind of comes from the digital world may not have. Well, it's really fascinating. And when you look at even a local campaign, ultimately a campaign is made up of a couple of fundamental skill sets, right? You've got your your data team, you've got your digital team who are doing the advertisements. You've, you've probably got some version of tour or advance that's out there. You've got a communications team and uh, you know there are other skills you can layer in. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of big pillars right now. But um, generally speaking, uh, you become the campaign manager because you're good at one of those other things along the way, 
right? You you specialize at something. Actually, there's nothing sadder and sillier, by the way, than somebody coming in and being like, I want to be the campaign manager. It's like, okay, well, go get a list, go knock some doors, go prove you can do something, then prove you can manage that something and then go on and so forth. But um, to, to hand everything over to the digital side risks losing an entire stream that is logistics. At a certain point, if you're going to be running a, a campaign like this, a certain amount of cross-training is necessary. You need to understand what the logistical considerations are. Like, like clearly the guy has never done advance at any substantive way yeah, before yeah, if, yeah. if he's going to make a mistake like this. You need to understand a bit more even about communications in different media than digital because there are other considerations that go along with that. And and really, I would say that if you're a campaign chair or campaign manager at that level, uh, you've got to be a bit of a polymath. You've got to have a bit of an understanding of all of these things. You don't need to be great at all of these things. You can be great at the one thing that got you the job in the first place, but you've got to know how all of these other things work. And I just feel that um, that there's just no evidence that Parscale brings that. And as much as we have moved more to a digital space, what we are learning today is that a fuck up in the real world becomes a digital problem. Mm. And so you can't just sort of say, doesn't matter, he's a digital genius. Carter, anything to add to that? You've held these positions in the past yourself, campaign chair, campaign strategist, manager. Anything to add around this this delta of, of, of skill sets that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, no one starts at the t at that position, right? The the campaign uh, manager, especially, uh, is literally in charge of moving the pieces around and making sure that everything is getting done. Um, the best managers, in my mind, and this is where David Plouffe kind of comes from in the in the old Obama model, is someone who actually has managed the 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 organizers and the old organizer model. Um, of actually pulling together people, working with human beings, because that ultimately is what a campaign is comprised of. It's not about buying ads. Um, yes, you buy ads. Yes, without a good digital campaign, you can't win. Yes, without a good traditional media campaign, you can't win. But the surefire way to disaster is not having the ability to work with the people who head everything up. And those organizers come from all kinds of different places, the statewide levels, um, the different types of caucuses or different types of groups that you're reaching out to. Um, literally hundreds and thousands of people will be the people that the campaign manager needs to speak to, um, if not individually, then certainly as a collective. And this is where, you know, being the head of digital doesn't get you there. The head of digital can literally be done out of the basement of someone's house. I mean, we've seen that over and over again, where you get organizers who are, you know, become good at digital, who you put them in the basement. You don't have to worry as much about them interacting. They pick up the same information, but it's not the same as going out and trying to motivate a group of uh, 250 door knockers tonight, right? Like you, you want to learn your campaign skills, try and get 250 people to show up on one night to do one thing. That'll teach you your campaign skills because that's a pain in the ass. Corey, let's zoom. Let's zoom back into the Parscale story for a second. So you are helping Trump crisis manage this situation right now. Let's say you're a campaign chair. You're a Paul Manafort, uh, perhaps not in prison, but you are playing a Paul <laughs> Manafort style character, uh, and and you're you're helping Trump kind of get through this. What advice are you giving him right now in terms of the the sustainability of his campaign? Does Brad Parscale need to go? Does the head need to roll to begin with? What do you, what do you need to what do you need to do right now? Well, that's that's tough because you also don't want to have a campaign that just reeks of death. Although obviously Donald Trump made a few senior campaign staff changes in 2016 and he managed to survive that just fine. 
there there's probably my recommendation would probably be if he's good at digital let's put him in digital he doesn't even need to necessarily lose the title but he can't be calling these shots and he certainly can't be opening his mouth about this anymore and so start to build the campaign artifice around him uh you mentioned the idea of a campaign chair perhaps who can come in this happens on campaigns all the time Mm -hmm. and by the way if the campaign chair is no good add a campaign co-chair put them back in charge. There are really two questions here. One is about the actual functional operations of the campaign, and you need to get Parscale off of them if he's making mistakes like this. And the other is about optics. And if it becomes an ego thing, and you're worried about looking like, um, uh, you know, there's this bit of failure that's associated to the campaign, if you have to get rid of Parscale, leave him in the job, but take the job away from him. Carter, anything to add? Happens all the time. You wind up with a, a campaign manager who's not the campaign manager anymore. He just never gets fired. Just you, you remove a whole bunch of their responsibilities. And all of a sudden there's a campaign manager of people in process, a campaign manager of traditional advertising and a campaign manager of digital. Um, but then there's a campaign chair, you know, a new title of some sort who's actually in charge of the campaign. Um it just essentially demotes your top guy one level down without changing the titles. Um, you know, you can't fire him. Not, not at this stage. Corey, Corey close us off on this. I think Trump's going to fire him. It's his style, <laughs> right? He just fires people. Uh, any normal campaign, they would do the maneuvers we're talking about, uh, slowly move him out of the day-to-day flow, maybe get him into a different position two months from now. Trump's just going to fire him. That's what he does. Last question on this is, is, is there anything here that Biden or a progressive PAC should do to leverage this, this, this fail? I mean, of course, they're going to throw it into ads. They're going to make content about it. But is there anything in particular that you see an opportunity here for Carter? I'll go to you first. Absolutely not. Um, let you let your surrogates do this. I, I've said this a couple of times on the podcast. Um, your opponent is destroying themselves. Allow them to destroy themselves. There's all kinds of surrogates already. The, the Liberty Pack has put up a, a, a commercial based on last night's rally. I mean, this is not ha- it's it's happening in real time. Biden needs to focus on Biden's campaign, um, which apparently doesn't need to be that good to be in a position to win. Um, and it's not that good. But he, he the last thing he needs to do is do something where he's attacking Trump, takes a misstep and then has an unforced error. Um, let the Liberty Group take the unforced error. Corey? Yeah, Joe Biden's not exactly packing them in, so I would be very careful if I was him. 6,200 people is still an awful lot of people, and I'm not seeing those at the Biden rallies right now. Okay, we'll leave it there with that segment and move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, has Aaron O'Toole become a Karen O'Toole? Get it? Karen? It's a meme? Guys, I am killing it this week. You're killing it today. And I feel like your reactions... I mean, Carter's overly enthused, but I mean, anything will make Carter laugh. But Corey, you make me laugh. That's true. Your mere presence makes me chuckle. I actually stole that uh, from uh, from t- a Twitter friend Matt Matt Combs. I'm giving him uh, I'm giving him a heads up. He sent me like 15 headlines to use, and this was oh, my favorite nice. one. Nice. Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about Aaron O'Toole. Of course, coming off the heels of uh, his his uh, poor French debate, coming off the heels of an English debate, where we have tied it about him as being viable. Uh, saying that in second place, there is a chance that Aaron O'Toole could be the next leader. So let's talk about him. And then he, on Friday night, wages um, 
an allegation against the McKay campaign. He says that uh, in a late night news release Friday that he has filed a former complaint with three police agencies seeking investigation into Peter McKay's campaign, uh, suggesting that there is a data breach. And then he names a uh, a organizer for the McKay campaign, Jamie Lull from from Alberta here, suggesting that there's a data breach and this individual had kind of stolen data from the campaign. Corey, you know, before we get into the strategy and if there is any, what do you kind of make of this from uh, from O'Toole in this moment in time of of the race? Well, it it really it, it's fascinating. You know, I was just saying last week it's very hard to move people's first first choice support once they've already bought a membership for them. And I'll just reiterate, just because they bought the membership from the campaign doesn't mean they bought the membership for the campaign. All to say it's tough to move votes once those uh, membership purchases are locked. This is the kind of thing that can lose votes. This is the kind of thing where people can look at Peter McKay and say, oh my goodness, this is just shady. I can't have anything to do with it. Alternatively, if it turns out these are entirely unfounded allegations, these are the kind of things that can make people run screaming from Aaron O'Toole because it starts to sound very tinfoil hat-ish if, if it turns out that there's just absolutely nothing to it, no reason to believe it. Now, I know nothing of the substance of these allegations. None of us do because all the campaign has put out has been that uh, one-page press release. But but I mean, now we're at a moment where I think everybody is is looking around and saying, what the hell is happening? Carter, let's talk to me about the strategy because Corey's gotten into it a bit already. Is is what's the strat- what's the pr- uh, perspective strategy here, right? We don't exactly know what the O'Toole organizers are thinking, but they know they're probably in second place. They know they're not outright leading this thing. Uh, there must be some strategy at play here. Can you can you kind of suggest, at least in your mind, what you think is going on? Yeah, I think that there's, there's two strategic elements. The first is um, they needed to change the channel after two bad debates. Uh, so you put out a, 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 a statement about a, a police complaint and all of a sudden the channel has changed. We're not talking about the debates anymore. Now what we're doing is we're talking about, um, you know, did Peter McKay's campaign do something unethical? Right. So it's a channel changer. That's that's the very first thing. Uh, there's no reason to announce it publicly. You go to the police, the police begin their investigation and the police do their work. If you don't think it hurt. I mean, the substance of the data breach sounded like it it, it stole Aaron O'Toole's strategy. Uh, here's Aaron O'Toole's strategy in, in simple terms. Get more votes than Peter McKay. Like, I, I don't I don't really understand um, what they think was stolen on the Zoom calls. And. Uh, on top, I mean, I'm not sure I'm following um, this as being a great uh, political misstep. If 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 they think they can they can paint Peter McKay as the bad guy in this, then they will. Uh, Jamie Law's uh, very short denial, I think, was very effective. You know, not a word of this is true. Um, and here's the problem: it's gone to the police services. Uh, the, the police services that are still investigating whether or not Jason Kenney's teams and, uh, and, and our candidate that really wasn't a candidate here in Alberta actually did anything wrong. You know, and how many, that was years ago, the, the investigation's not over. So this isn't something that's going to be rectified or proven either to, uh, O'Toole or McKay's benefit, uh, before the vote is held. So I think, you know, if I, if I were in McKay camp, I would have put something out already that changed the channel from that channel change. I think all it was was a channel change off of a crappy, um, off of crappy debate performance. And I don't, I wouldn't uh, be surprised in, in 
two to 20 years when the RCMP and finishes investigating these types of political breaches, we, we don't, uh, we don't hear anything more from it. Corey Carter makes an interesting point here, which is we've seen here in Alberta that, that these investigations can take a very long time. There's a good likelihood that this does not get proven uh, right or wrong before this leadership uh, race takes place. So does that not challenge your sentiment that like if if uh, O'Toole puts this out, he you know, and if it's if it's false or if it's misleading, that there's a political price to pay because it'll, it'll be baked before then. So don't you think that there, this is an upside regardless? Well, it's a fair point, but obviously any advice taken to the extreme uh, starts to fall apart here. And if people look at these allegations and they see this less as a cloud on McKay and more as just a desperate move by O'Toole, that, that will not help him. And I don't know that we have clear sight yet on how people view this. There's a couple of things that I think are worth noting about the letter that came out on Friday night. The first is it came out on Friday night. Yeah. Who changes a channel on a Friday night? That's when you take out that the trash me, per se, right? Yeah. Well, that makes me think they were a little nervous about it. And, and so in a funny way, that actually makes me think the allegations are more founded. Uh, the other thing that I want to point out is that they named a specific staffer. Now, you might think that is simply for precision, but um, it, it, in some part, it seems to be relying on people having questions about Jamie Lal's character. He was barred from running provincially by a judge for not filing. Uh, he was not allowed a nomination by the PCs. Um, at, in, and in the same election, I believe it was for 15. And then he ran as an independent. I seem to recall I could have yeah, that wrong. Right. But the point is, you Google Jamie Law's name, you're going to have these questions coming up. So I, I feel like in some ways they're trying to bolster the case by naming the specific individual. There's no other real reason you would do that because, boy, alive, that is that is very, I mean, that's libelous if, if you can't back that up. So um, th th those were both very remarkable things about the letter. Carter, we're going to jump yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm... I, I didn't like it when the letter came out. I mean, I don't like these types of accusations being made publicly. I mean, I would like to have known a little bit more about how the hack was detected uh, and how they came to the conclusion of a specific individual. You know, someone else, it just, it just makes it, it makes me very nervous. I was very skeptical of the release right from the beginning. And I, I still am skeptical. I don't trust, um, the campaign that 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 is crying wolf and i don't trust that the wolf himself in in the mckay campaign didn't do it i i mean campaigns are known for trying to get information about other campaigns but this feels like it's uh a little bit a little bit more suspect in my mind i'm not a i'm not a big believer of this i do concede Corey's point that the naming of the specific individual did cause my uh, eyebrows to go up a bit. Corey, uh, just finish us off on this, because what do you feel like the McKay response here should be? Should it just be what they've done right now, which is calling this hogwash, uh, universally denying it, saying it's not true? Because to Carter's earlier point, the truth or, or will not be necessarily revealed until this cake is uh, even after uh, this cake of, of this leadership race is baked. What, what would you suggest to them and advise them right now? Absolutely untrue. Happy to work with the RCMP. Great example that Aaron O'Toole does not have the judgment or temperament to be leader of the Conservative Party, that he would throw these absolutely unfounded, baseless, and unsubstantiated allegations around. Carter? Yep, Corey's right. Pains <laughs> me to admit. 
<laughs> okay, we're going to move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, it's the strategy round. So, guys, we've done this in the past when we've had a, a shitload of stories. I'm going to go one case after the next, and I want you guys to give me your, your two-line or your 30-second elevator pitch style strategy. So I will list this incident, and then I'll tell you which party you're, you're strategizing for. Uh, so how about we start like this? Carter, I'll start with you. Uh, you're the liberals. Okay, you're strategizing for the liberals right now, and you are trying to spin the fact that you did not get a UN Security Council seat. What are you doing? The UN. I mean, who even knows about the UN? I would minimize the UN. I would put focus on. I, I'd return to uh, this seat came up at a time when we were doing COVID, and uh, we dropped our. You know, we were dealing with the the world's most challenging economic service uh, circumstances and we refocused on that which matters to canadians which is their health and their economy and if we lost the seat we lost the seat i'm just not we're not going to shed tears over a nice to have when our needs to haves aren't being met Corey, once again same question you're the liberals and you're spinning the fact that you lost the u.n security council seat i would say everything carter said there and then i would also probably say something along the lines of you know, Harper's uh, approach to world politics has taken its toll and it's going to take some time to get back from that. And certainly we saw some positive signs in our conversations with our allies out there as to how we've advanced things. By the way, look at all of these metrics out there that show Canada's reputation has improved since 2015. Um, but we've got more work to do in this area. We know that. We also know that this simply wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't something that we... Uh, we're that fixated on right now. Very happy a strong ally got the seat. Corey, I'm putting you in the seat of the NDP, something uh, you may not be this fam- all, all that unfamiliar with, but you're, you're, you're advising Jagmeet Singh and you're, you're giving him advice, right, internally uh, as to how he maintains this momentum of, of um, what many would call his call out within, within the House where he called one of the Bloc MPs uh, racist for refusing to support the systemic racism motion. How, what would you tell him right now, uh, your, your snappy elevator pitch strategy to extend the life cycle of this or to pivot into something that only he could lean into? Well, you've got their attention now. So, so what can we do to make a durable gain here? Um, this is a good opportunity to really cleave that difference in Quebec with the bloc. And it's a great opportunity also to show that you're willing to be more of a champion of these issues than the liberals would ever be. It's good, good chance to really kind of crystallize and polarize as it is. And, um, and, and fundamentally, I think what he's got to do is, is back it up with a very substantive motion of some fashion that effectively says, no, this will not be stood for in the Parliament of Canada. So uh, put the Liberals in an uncomfortable place where they effectively have to vote to silence a Bloc MP, uh, a Quebec MP at that, uh, for voicing an opinion that is, you know, th- that has a certain cachet and popularity in areas of Quebec that the Liberals are courting. Stick the screws to the liberals right now by putting something concrete in the rules of parliamentary procedure. Carter, same question to you. Strategizing for the MP and Jagmeet Singh. I think that uh, I don't disagree with Corey's strategy. I mean, I think that that'd be a really good part of it. But I would also go and say, you know, we have to take this beyond Jagmeet Singh and, and take it to um, the hundreds of thousands of, of Canadians and millions of Canadians that experience racism on a daily basis and trying to figure out how. Uh, we can um, make an example of this individual uh, situation uh, that will uh, resonate with all of those who are experiencing uh, racism on a daily basis. This this is the opportunity to be seen as the 
uh, standard bearer for a movement. And what I, I'm seeing him do right now is that he's, uh, you know, Singh is, is primarily focused on his affront. This isn't about him. It shouldn't be about him. You don't enter politics to further your own end. You enter politics to to further um, others, those who are trod upon. And I would think that this is a perfect opportunity. And I'd really focus in on uh, British Columbia and trying to uh, take the the beachhead that the NDP has in British Columbia and using, um, this isn't the first time in the world that politics from another region are used in a different region to try and win over votes. And that's what I would recommend to them. I love this. You guys are doing excellent so far. Okay, let's keep it going. Corey, the next one is the liberals again. So you're strategizing for the liberals once more. And the story this time is that the liberals allowed... Uh, MP Marwan Tabara to keep running in the 2019 uh, election despite sexual harassment uh, investigation. So the Green Light Committee flagged something. They let it through. They let him run. He's now an MP and he gets into trouble again. How are you spitting this for the liberals? <laughs> these are not easy. And I have to remind our audience, I do not prep you at all for these questions. So I am actually quite impressed sitting here listening to you guys. Uh, what is it called? Bullshit me uh, with these answers, but they're yeah. actually quite excellent. Um, <laughs> well, you said that now. Yeah, now I'm going to think of something to we're say fucked here on this one, by the way. And, and yeah, that's the answer. Um, that's cool. Like, I think there's something interesting about well, that. But uh, Greenlight Committee made a mistake. We made a mistake. Uh, this is where I think that the right move is to sever as quickly as possible. Uh, we don't know when the next election will be, but. This is something that is going to languish for a while. As has been pointed out in a different context today, courts take some time. And I think the opportunity to just move on and say, well, this uh, is, is out there. And, and while there is some uncertainty as to who knew what, when, where, why, I think we just need uh, to move on. Carter? Yeah, I would probably do that. And then I'd tag on, we're going to update and improve our processes. And here are three ways that we're going to do it. Number one, we're going, That's good we're going to put... Uh, uh, we're going to make sure that our uh, green light committees are at the very least gender balanced and uh, racially di diverse. Um, and then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to have our, our candidates uh, go through a fast process to get them up and running and a slow process um, that will make sure that uh, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and, and, we, and we don't miss anything like this. Uh, and we will not be afraid to remove uh, candidate if they've done something even the day before the election because doing the right thing is more important than not doing the right thing and then some third thing that i can't think of but i'd do it in threes two doesn't make sense you have to do three court you had a comment before to finish this off well no i've sat on a green like committee before and uh it is it is a tough job it's an interesting job um and the green light committee is actually in the um constitution of the liberal party they should just they should update it i agree okay we're going to the conservatives next so put on your conservative strategist hat and one of your two leading contenders in your leadership race in this case aaron o'toole has has effectively denied by not stating and agreeing that systemic racism exists in canada is this a big enough deal? Do you, what do you guys do? Do you do you issue a statement? You're asked as a party. What's the party stance? Your two leaders are, are effectively divergent on this issue. What do you say, Carter? I'm throwing it to you. I'm working for the party. I'm not working for the, the leadership. You're working candidates. for the party. You're the conservatives. That's right. You're the you're the party in the yeah. institution. I dig a hole. I say that this is about the voters. This is the uh, this is the opportunities for the members to speak. They're going to make their choice. I'm not going to get involved as a political party and say anything that could uh, 
influence the outcome of the race. And I want that all off the record and make sure, please not to quote me. <laughs> famous famous well, last uh, lines. Corey, anything to add to that? Or anything? To- yeah, I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because let's just play this one out a bit. Let's say yeah. that you say, uh, no, Aaron O'Toole is wrong. Well, then the Aaron O'Toole campaign can use you in fundraising. Look at these guys. It, the the, the fix is in, uh, you know, the party apparatus is lining up with McKay, but I have you. I don't need the party apparatus. Donate, show up, vote, all of those things. If yeah. you say, no, uh, you have the exact same problem the other way, it seems much less likely. And if you say nothing at all, um, uh, you're going to get beaten senseless, but you're you're going to get beaten senseless uh by people who are going to hurt less, frankly. So you just, you say nothing, you kick it. You, you do exactly what Carter said. Opportunity for members to speak. I encourage you to reach out to the the different members and uh, you know, our different MPs and whatnot, because this is the time when their voices are heard, not the voice of a party apparatus. Okay. I'm going to give you guys the last one and it's a softball, but here it is. Anyways, you're the liberals again. You're strategizing for the liberals. The Bolton book comes out on Tuesday. And of course, one of the passages says that Trump does not like Trudeau. You get asked by this by a journalist or by a team of journalists to, to issue a comment. What are you doing, Carter? I'm saying, thank goodness. Um, we're standing up for Canada. I put Canada before Trump's America um, because I don't know, you know, we're, we're, this is a difficult relationship and, and we're not in this to be popular. We're in this to make sure that uh, Canada's interests are served and uh, him not liking us. Uh, the people he do- does like tend to be dictatorial uh, to- totalitarians. Uh, I'm okay. Not being in that club. I'm in the club that is, that, that wants strong democracies uh, with strong public health care systems and education systems. And uh, if Trump doesn't like that, well, I'm I'm, ter- I'm just terribly sorry that I couldn't make it a little easier for him. Corey? Yeah, the premier and the prime or the prime minister and the president are from different generations. They're from different parties. It's not surprising that they don't necessarily get along on a personal level. But the important thing is they get along on a professional level. And we have to make sure they have a respectful relationship based on facts and our common commitment uh, to the world, Western worldview, blah, 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 fill in the facts. But did you just write what you that do is you statement? I'm looking, I'm, did you just actually write that statement right now? Yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> It's what I do. I work with words. But it's uh, the important thing here, the pith of this is that you're pivoting off of the personal and onto the professional. And then you can say all of the nice things, Carter. I love it. Okay, I'm going to leave that segment there. We need to do that more often. And let's move it to our next segment. Yeah, he's my least favorite. Oh, yeah, for you. For me, it's just like, I don't care if it's a train wreck. I really doesn't. It doesn't affect my reputation whatsoever. You know, before we leave this one, Zane, I got to tell yeah. you, uh, if I'm Jagmeet Singh, I say something along the lines of, now that I've had five minutes to think about it, if the rules allow racism like this to go unchecked, the rules need to be changed. I'm calling on all parties to join me in supporting procedural changes that will allow the naming and shaming of racism in the House as we would expect it to be named and shamed everywhere. Look at that. Carter, did you write, a, did you write multiple statements in the span of the last 25 seconds? No, my answer was pretty good right off the bat. <laughs> Uh, let's move it on to our next segment our next segment true notes strong and free of drew barnes uh this is this is of course for our alberta crowd uh for those who are interested in the um no i think this is for all yeah yeah let's start it as an alberta specific issue because it is but the ramifications to your point Corey, i agree 
are much larger than our province. And it's surrounding this thing called the Fair Deal Panel. And Carter, do you mind just giving our audience a bit of an understanding, especially those who may not be from Alberta, what the Fair Deal Panel was in Genesis? And then kind of maybe just a couple of highlights of what it produced uh, as, as a few of its outcomes. Yeah, so I mean, the the idea of the Fair Deal panel comes from uh, you know uh, Kenny's primary thesis of the election: we're getting screwed by the rest of Canada. Um, so there were two theses in the uh, in the election. One was the NDP destroyed the oil and gas economy, and the other was we're getting screwed by the rest of Canada. Uh, equalization became the primary whipping horse, so that you know, we've paid six hundred million dollars or six hundred billion dollars more than we've gotten back. Uh, and the we in the statement is always Alberta. Alberta has paid money. Of course, it's a false premise, but it's then been expanded to include um, things like, should we have an Alberta provincial police department? Should we have a provincial firearms czar? Uh, should we have an Alberta pension plan? Uh, th- there's a theme to this, and you can see the theme is that, should we put Alberta first? You know, How do we get Alberta to the center of all of our, our challenges? Um, it centers on equalization. Um, but then there's a couple of good things too. And one of the good things is the idea of fairer trade between provinces. I think that a lot of governments have talked about fairer trade between provinces. It's hard to get because it turns out that everybody has an equal voice. And I'll just, I'll leave it there because I, I want, I'm almost starting to go down the answer to the, your next question, Zane, which I'm sure will be insightful as, as always. But I, I find this all very frustrating because it plays to the wrong instincts in our electorate. And I think that the whole fair deal panel, even the way that it's structured, the fair deal panel implies that we don't have a fair deal uh, to begin with. So that's the the short summary. I mean, there's, I think there's, what is there, 19 or 20 recommendations, Corey? I mean, yeah, each yeah. one of them a little bit, um, you know, more navel gazing than the last. Corey, I want to actually just pick up on what Carter said, which was this concept of Alberta having a fair deal. Does Alberta have a fair deal? Was this was this report necessary, or was it a political, uh, you know, instrument to try to, you know, magnetize some of the separatists in Alberta? Kind uh, of give me your comments on uh, kind of bo- both of those questions, I guess. Well, what's fair? There's no way you can answer that definitively, but I'll tell you, I'll just lay a couple of facts on the table here. One is that Alberta is by far, even now at these economically depressed times, uh, the wealthiest province in Canada, right? It's it's not even close. Like when you look at GDP per capita, uh, it's just so significantly above most of our neighbors. And, uh, And so when you think about something like equalization, it's right there in the name. It's about equalizing uh, the standard of living across the country. How do you give more equalization to a country or a part of the country that already has a higher standard of living than everywhere else? That doesn't make any sense. It is, it is prima facie stupid, right? But that all said, there's no doubt that Alberta has gone through some hard times lately. And uh, those hard times have not been helped by the policies that are in place and have been enshrined that deal with the transfer of money uh, between the federal government and the provinces, because they were really never dealt, uh, designed for a thing like this. When you look at equalization, there's, there's all sorts of, like, I can't go into the whole formula, A, because I'd be beyond my depth, and B, because we would lose every listener here, even if I went to the level of my depth. But, uh, you know, uh, Alberta's resource-based economy plays into the equalization formula differently 
than uh, the economies of other provinces do. And there are real areas of contention. But it's funny because it's like on the specifics, Alberta has a point. And on the general, Alberta has absolutely no point whatsoever. I mean, I mean that's fundamentally the challenging thing about this conversation right now. Yeah. And, and I think if you were to jump in and say, okay, let's, let's take Corey's point as fact and and you know we're somehow disadvantaged because of our resource base well let's play with the numbers you know are we in fact going to suddenly stop giving all this money to uh you know to the other side i mean we still make the most money i mean i always like to boil it down to the simplest inputs of the of the formula not the most complex inputs the simplest inputs of the formula are we have a higher base level of household incomes we have a higher taxation capacity than almost anywhere else in Canada. You know, everybody complains about Quebec. And I ask them, I ask a simple question. Would you rather be in Quebec and make less money, you know, and pay higher taxes? Or would you rather be in Alberta, make more money and pay lower taxes? Uh, I think that everybody would choose to be in Alberta, making more money, paying less taxes. Uh, that's just the reality. And, and the other thing is that all taxation is equalization. Even a flat tax, which is on its face supposed to be designed to be fairer, Right. We're all going to pay 10 percent. Doesn't matter how much money we make. We're all paying 10 percent of our income. It is going to take more money from the person who makes one hundred thousand dollars than the person who makes ten thousand dollars. That makes it an equalization for idea because the, the services that we receive, uh, whether they're roads or their health care or their education, are all designed to be equal. And we as Canadians have made a thoughtful decision that says that we would like everybody across the country to be able to enjoy similar sets of services uh, in key areas. And that is the core concept behind equalization. Those of us who make more money will always be paying more taxes. Therefore, we will always pay more than our quote unquote fair share under a fair deal. Uh, it's like a multimillionaire complaining that he's paying too much money through his property taxes um, because he still he doesn't have a roadway that's paved with gold. Like, suck it up, princess. This is the way it is. We all pay taxes based on our means to pay the taxes, and then we, we all get the same services. We aren't a feudal society with lords and serfs. We are equals under our system, and that is what equalization is about. End of sermon. <laughs> uh so hold on this is great because i think you guys have really teed up uh the 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 political sort of aspects i want to now go a little bit further in terms of strategy aspect Corey, what was the fair deal panel in your mind trying to sell to albertans what was you know of course it was trying to sell in certain cases a referendum on equalization we've heard that as as a headline item uh but of course the possibility can we, can we of talk that about that yeah, yeah let's talk about that because the possibility of that referendum uh, requires several hoops to be jumped through, many of which I can probably classify as impossible. Uh, but Corey, to you to comment on, on that referendum. This is one of those things where I think both sides are shouting past each other. So I'd like to sort of lay on the line what the argument for a referendum on equalization would be. I will say right now, I do not agree with it. But it is not as simple as it's sometimes presented, which is the government of Alberta wants to have a referendum on something outside of an area of provincial control. So a couple of facts everybody will throw on the table right away. So I'm going to do it right now. Equalization, as Carter sort of alluded to, 
this is not the province of Alberta cutting a check to a different province. This is not the province of Alberta cutting a check to the federal government who then in turn redistributes it. That's not what equalization is. Equalization is a federal spending program. It is that it is the federal government using the federal tax base. So what they're collecting in federal income taxes, which are the same, whether you live in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Ontario or Quebec or wherever, but deciding how to distribute that money in a way that makes the country more equal, essentially helping top up, you know, the, the health and social capacity of different provinces, right? That's what equalization is. So when one of the recommendations is the notion that we uh, ask to remove equalization from the constitution, a provincial referendum on this, people, I think, immediately say, well, how in the world is that even Alberta's, like, like that's not Alberta's decision to make. That's a federal decision. That is 100% correct. However, the argument is this, the Supreme Court in the 1990s, while we were dealing with questions of, of Quebec separatism and whatnot, said that if a province holds a referendum on an issue about the constitution, the federal government is obliged to negotiate with that province on that matter. That's, that's how you would separate from the country, but that same mechanism could, in theory, not a theory I necessarily agree with, be applied for anything else in the constitution, including section 36, which is equalization. So you hold a referendum as Albertans, the majority of Albertans say, yes, I want this removed. That would then trigger the federal government having to negotiate. That's the theory. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong because it deals with every other province and it's just, it doesn't actually hold even like kind of a first sniff test kind of pass. But it is not as simple as Alberta saying we're going to change the constitution on our own. Nobody is actually saying that. And I think we need to put that out there so we're not dealing in the world of caricatures. No, but we are dealing with the world of caricatures because of the way that the the question is being framed, right? This this framing began with Ralph Klein in the 1990s as though we were somehow issuing a check and we, we have decided that we're going to fall into it. Um, and the government of Alberta, Jason Kenney as premier, if he's going to be intellectually dis like you're presenting an intellectually honest discussion about it. Uh, and, and if we had an intellectually honest discussion about the equalization referendum, then maybe I could even buy into it. But here's the problem. It's intellectually dishonest. It's intellectually um, false to, to, to carry this all the way through. And, it, and it, it, it doesn't allow us a fair playing field to try and even fight back. If the three of us decided that this was the most unfair referendum question in the world, how would we even fight it? Right? Because the, 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 the poor me drama that's been, that's been created over the last 25 years around equalization in Alberta has set the playing field in such a fashion that we can never get an actual honest to God question about the constitution of Canada. And this is what it's about. This is about us as Canadians and what we stand for, but we have chosen to put the Republic of Alberta first and it's the Republic of Alberta that's going to ask the question. And uh, it's not even going to be framed properly because Jason Kenney knows he can't frame it properly because if he does, um, he doesn't get the outcome that he wants because he's an Corey, asshole. Yeah, Corey, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the um, this won't be our only referendum by the sounds of it. You know, we might have a whole bunch of things to vote on as Albertans, all of which are designed to increase provincial powers. No, uh, some of them, all of which are designed to increase turnout of right wing to elect different right wing councils. I'm sorry, I had to interject. 
and it- but will have the side effect of increasing provincial powers. Yes. No, no. I mean, like the, the, you can get into, you can talk about intent and you can argue intent on a lot of these. I, I think the CPP one, the idea that Canada would create or Alberta would create its own pension plan is one of the most interesting, but maybe I'll just stop there and turn over hosting back to Zane, no, who looks like he has something to no, say. No, this is good because I think Carter just brought up the point I did, which is uh, the political and strategic motive here seems to be to attach some of these referendum, referendi, I don't know what the plural is. Uh, probably referenda. Referendi, look at that. Uh, attaching them to the muni- no, up, just, uh, upcoming municipal election. Uh, and and kind of what do you guys make of that strategy by by Kenny? It seems pretty nakedly obvious. Am I, am I reading it too simplistically? Do you think there's more nuance there? What do you think, Carter? Well, let me let me argue it from Jason's point of view. We're already having an election. Uh, when we when we elected Senate seats, we would just tag it on top of the uh, the municipal election. This is what we do. It saves us a ton of money. We don't want to have an HST referendum like they had in uh, in British Columbia. We certainly don't want another Olympic plebiscite. We, you know, these are these single issue one time elections don't get us to what we want. We'll just tag it onto a municipal election, except. The other side of the coin is that this fundamentally changes the, the the tone and tenor of the municipal election. And it is going to be an Alberta versus country election. And, and now candidates for councils, candidates for Reeve, candidates for uh, mayor are going to find that they can take a, a electoral shortcut and by by being for or against one of these uh, against these questions. And my problem is, I think that we're going to see being for uh, or, you know, being against uh, equalization uh, is going to be a much easier uh, electoral path uh, than being for equality of all Canadians, which just pisses me off. Corey, talk to me about that same question, the politics here of, of not just this referendum question, but of the of the report at large. What what do you kind of see its impact potentially being, whether that's be attaching it to a municipal election or, or other sort of, you know, domino effects that it could cause? Well, you know, it, it's not clear to me that this is inherently and inevitably going to result in more, quote unquote, right wingers showing up. Right. This is polarizing on both sides. I think that there's an awful lot of people who are thinking, take CPP away from me over my dead body. Um, and as far as the idea that there will be counselors running on, I, you know, I support recommendation eight or whatever, I, you know, I think that's unlikely because I think that council elections are so low information to begin with. Um, unless you were going to combine with it, this notion of a counselor also having a party label for the first time, I, I think that would be, it's a difficult sell for me that it's going to fundamentally change the outcome of council elections. Maybe mayoral, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just find it, I find it. I, I actually believe that Carter is right, and this is probably all about getting the certain type of turnout up. I mean, that that's the most obvious, but but I just don't know that it's going to play out that way in the real world. Carter, any any other political goals this government may have with this report that you want to throw out there outside of outside of turnout for for a referendum? Anything else they want to do? Well, I mean, this is the oldest style of politics in the world, and it is us versus them. Uh, we build our tribe by attacking some other tribe, and that's that's the. The model that we're going for, um, you know, we, we've done it primarily with Quebec. Uh, it goes back to the Lougheed days. Uh, I think Quebec used us. And we used Quebec. Um, it is the nature of, of our human being selves to, to, to put ourselves into in-group and out-group. Um, and at times of, of economic distress, especially, it becomes very attractive 
to to try and hoard that which we perceive as our own. Um, and here we are. We're scared. The economic future is in jeopardy. Our our uh, we must protect ourselves from all of those that are outside of us and different than us. And that is a natural human instinct. And Jason Kenny knows this, and he's going to try and take advantage of it as much as he can. And that's that's the the common theme. Um, the Alberta pension plan. The, you know we can do it better than them. Um, the Alberta firearms. Uh, we can protect your guns. You know, and and then ultimately Drew Barnes taking it a step further by saying, you know, maybe we should start thinking about not being part of Canada. And ultimately, all of this, all of this, is uh, whether Jason Kenney says it or not. Ultimately, all of this is a as a as a massive step uh, towards separation. Uh, and it's just. It's because he's playing us as Albertans before us as Canadians. And that bothers me. Corey, we started this this podcast, this episode in particular, around communication strategy with stagecraft. I want to know, uh, end this, this particular segment with the communication strategy of how this report was released, which I find quite humorous. Uh, it was, of course, authored by the panel members. Uh, Donna Kennedy Glanz being the, one of the chief writers and kind of being the de facto spokesperson when it was released. But then you had Drew Barnes, who's a who's an MLA, also part of this report, coming out and almost disagreeing with the executive summary, so to speak, and saying, this needs to go further. This needs to go even further than, than what this report says. How do you kind of, just from maybe my, maybe my amusement sense, but what do you kind of make of, of how this was released? Well, it tells me that it was not a very comfortable report crafting process, and it probably was a fair bit of effort to avoid a minority report from Drew Barnes. Um, because whenever you see attention like that, that tells that suggests to me that it was a very uh, it was a negotiated piece. People very carefully chose words, and the minute either party says something beyond the words, that that informs you. I don't think there was a broad consensus there, and it may have been everybody versus Drew Barnes. That certainly wouldn't shock me, but uh, my suspicion is that it it shows that behind the scenes there was a more aggressive force there. And I think that I want to mention something in response to what Carter said about taking a massive step towards separation. Um, you know, maybe, but there are Drew Barnes types in the world out there. And if you are a federalist who is deeply concerned about it, I'm not, it's not my strategy. But I can understand the strategy of saying, okay, we've got to take a couple of steps forward to appease and, and to sort of take the steam out of this and, and to give a bit of an off ramp. And, and so it's also possible many of these steps are an attempt to legitimately refound confederation in a way that takes, takes a lot of the steam out of separatist movements. Because I don't know if Canadians have been paying enough attention to this. And this is why I started by saying I hope all Canadians do take, well, this, take note of this. But at this, this takes us back to the, to the genesis of this particular equalization agreement, which was created by Stephen Harper. And at that time, he said he would not give any province a veto. Uh, th this is a Alberta prime minister with Jason Kenney uh, as a senior member of the uh, of the cabinet. And uh, it passed. I mean, I have no idea what happened in that cabinet meeting, but it came out as, as the as the process in the legislation. It's been minimally changed since then. Uh, and the reason it's been minimally changed is because it works. And, you know, I, I just think that Jason Kenney is a, a, a political genius at figuring out how to ensure that he's got his base and his group following him. He knows he, he's the only, well, like, he, there's two premiers that didn't get a COVID bump, him and Brian Pallister. He needs something and he's using the fair deal, deal, deal plan, panel 
fair deal panel. I can say it. Um, that came, you know, that, that was put in place because this is what he does. Uh, and Drew Barnes, I mean, my God, if that guy is a member of the government, Carter, caucus, Carter, 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 step out of the weeds for a minute. Stop talking to me about who was responsible for what equalization formula. We've got a problem fundamentally. Fundamentally, the problem is Alberta separatism is running amok right now, and it's manifested in a lot of different because ways. It's manifested Kenny. in the Wild Rose Party, which was not Jason Kenney. It's manifested in a million different separatist initiatives. And what I am saying now is we all have to be very careful at this moment. People are still looking at this with a certain amount of eye rolling. This is fucking serious. This is serious what's happening right now. Alberta is about to have a referendum on equalization, on creating its own pension plan, on creating its own provincial police. Basically, every tool that sovereignists have used in Quebec, many of them brought on by non-sovereignist governments to try to reduce the amount of separatist activity in the province, we're there. And it's time for the rest of the country to pay attention to this because this is all fundamentally rooted in a pretty serious problem, which is the economic troubles and tribulations of Alberta. We need some help here because this country is at a serious moment and, and people have got to do more than just roll their so, eyes. So, Corey, I have, I have to ask you then, on, on a, as a follow-up to that, do you genuinely believe that this deflating the balloon metaphorically is what this government is doing? Do you feel like that is their genuine intent here? Or do you feel like what you've said is, is a, perhaps a justification for moving through? Because I want to make sure we divorce those two things if they do require that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some combination of that, some combination of thinking an Alberta pension plan could better invest in Alberta interests, some combination of just, you know, that standard right wing laundry list. But I think a big mistake would be to say this is just pure political calculation. No, but let's go back there's something real to the Alberta here. pension plan. I mean, they want to put those Alberta, they want to put more pension funds into investing in Alberta's interest. That's fine, except that I think that the only interest that they see is oil and gas. So there's going to be no diversification. There's going to be continued focus on oil and gas. And that scares the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of me because it starts to go down a negative vortex that takes us further and further away from the Canada that we grew up with, the Canada that we understand. And the Canada that we understand, we were the heroes in the story. And the heroes in the story were the ones who wanted to stay a part of Canada and keep Quebec in. And now we're turning into the villains of the story. And the villains of the story are the ones that want to remove Alberta because we're selfish and our major industry is undergoing a tremendous uh, threat. So Alberta pension plan, prop up our economic interests. It's an insane idea. Yeah. It's a bad idea. It's doubling down. Uh, on an industry that is already deeply distressed. But Carter, my point is it's rooted in economic panic and we need some help with that economic no, but panic. You and I can economically panic. The premier of the province of Alberta has to be above the economic panic. They have to fucking lead. They have to fucking lead. And he's not a leader. He's a loser. Gonna, you're lost, Carl. I, I am gonna you're lost on this issue. I'm gonna leave that there. That is not how I thought it would go, but that's exciting nonetheless. Alrighty, let's move it on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. Guys, are you ready? Totally. Yes. Yeah, there you go. It's it's everyone's calm, everyone's chill. <laughs> Who knew? Fucking hard what, what, what happened to hold on? What happened to reader questions? Oh, I mean, did you do we not did you did you actually think we were gonna read those questions? I mean, I read once. Yes, I absolutely. The did. only we, note we, you gave we, to me is, "Hey Zane, read those questions ahead of time," and then I read them, and they were fine. Right. All right. Well, I mean, like I read the questions. I, I know you perhaps may have wanted me to say some of those questions aloud, but that was not the note you gave me. I'm just letting you know. 
I read those questions. Yeah, so distressed. Uh, do your do your lightning round. Do your lightning round. You're just ruining everything. It's just I mean, it's such good flow. Yeah, this know. is great. It was yeah, going awesome. And now you just throw. I, we don't do this for the listeners. What is wrong with you, Corey? You've lo- you've never mind. Okay, our over under in our lightning round. Here we go. First question: On a scale of one to ten, uh, how loud should Joe Biden and his campaign team get uh, about the firing of the Southern District of New York? Attorney General. So one of the things lost over the past couple of days is Trump unanimously just fired another person, this time uh, the Attorney General of the Southern District of New York, uh, who was investigating a lot of Trump's uh, what you'd call allies and close uh, close sort of counterparts. Uh, how loud would the Biden campaign want to get on this, Carter? Well, I, would, I wouldn't turn up the megaphone. I think that the, uh, the challenge with it is that it's a relatively small uh, moment in time and Trump has a tendency uh, to move 13, he'll be 13 issues down before you could cut a net. Um, you know, it's just, it's so many things, so many moving parts, another Friday night massacre. Um, what, what is, you know, Nixon had one Saturday night massacre. Trump's had like six, seven, like it's, it's, it's the entire system, not the individual. Um, maybe do up an ad of all of the different people that have lost their jobs, uh, you know, because they're investigating the Trump family, that would be interesting. But I, I don't think I'd turn on the turn the megaphone up very loudly. Corey, same question to you. How on a scale of one to ten, how loud does the Biden campaign get on this particular firing? Eleven. This one's different, and you can tell it's different based on Trump's response. Uh, the statute says only the president can fire um, the position, and you know what? He's so terrified to say he's the one who actually made the decision. He says, oh, well, it was, you know, it was Burr's decision. And yeah, because he knows that he would be interfering in a criminal uh, investigation for his own benefit if if he draws too close of a connection there. So get as loud as possible, force him to react to it as much as possible. The more he's on the record, the more legal jeopardy he puts himself in. Uh, this is not just about optics. This is actually about setting those chess pieces up to put this fucker in jail down the road. Look at that. Corey's fire. He's taking out the fact that I didn't He's have listener firing. questions on this he, question. This is yeah. good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Corey, I'm going back to you. Over, under on six. Over, under on six. How big of a deal was it that every single conservative leadership candidate struggled uh, with their French at that French debate? How, how big of a deal is it for the party? Over, under on six. Oh, it's it's definitely a big deal. You you have to have a pretty short memory or be under a certain age to uh, to forget in the in the 90s when Preston Manning was sitting in those French debates, just how pitiful that was and how limiting that was for the Reform Party's chances in Quebec. The reality is, if you can't speak the language, you can't talk to them both literally and metaphorically. And um, and the Conservative Party cannot afford to write off a quarter of the country if they intend uh, to contest for government. Carter, same question yeah. to you over under on six on how bad it is for the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, it's a D minus. Absolutely. You can't write off, you know, 76 seats or 77 seats. Could keep in mind, too, there's there's seats in New Brunswick that are francophone. Uh, you know, even in, in Calgary, we have a population of 10 percent francophone. Uh, no, we yeah, don't. We do. Uh, keep, keep going. going. No, I'll, okay. I'll pull it out for you. I'll get you the statistics. Um, there's tremendous. There, there's a tremendous francophone community across the country, and it is something that we are um, that we are proud of. And they can't do it, so it's it's a significant fail. I'm waiting half a beat for Corey to pull up his stat, but in the meantime, Corey, I'm going to get you to double task for a second, and. 
and, and give me a, give me a response to this. How big of a deal is it for the Trudeau government on a scale of one to ten? So one more time, on a scale of one to ten, how big of a deal is it for the Trudeau government that their budget or their their current deficit number sits just north of two hundred and fifty billion? Does the deficit matter anymore? How big of a deal is this? I don't think it matters at all. It certainly matters less than Carter's screw up when he improperly said that the 1.5% of Calgarians who have French as a mother tongue were 10%. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, I'm, it's just I'm not looking something at people care about 9%, anymore. Uh, 84th, I'm, I'm off by 2%, 7.9%. You're, you're, you're not looking at mother tongue. They're not francophones. Just no, get I'm, out of here. I'm looking at the, you don't get to define the All uh, right, the you lawyer. You lawyer. Yeah. Carter, yeah. answer the question. How big, how big is, the, is, the, is the budget deficit thing for Trudeau? I don't think it's that big. I mean, everybody's going to be announcing massive deficits. It um, doesn't matter which government you're in, which, uh, you know, which democracy it is, they're going to, they're going to be having massive deficits. Anybody who tried to fight COVID and anybody who's tried to uh, keep people economically sound is just going to get hammered. And that's just the price of doing business. Carter, I'm going back to you for our final question. On a scale of 1 to 100 decibels, once again, on a scale of 1 to 100 decibels, how loud were the gasps? Yeah, you got it? Okay, how loud were the gasps in the New York Times newsroom when they saw Justin Trudeau got a haircut? Well, I'll tell you something, (laughs) and and, and this pains me, but to me it was at least 76 decibels. Uh, I, I answer your question with an actual number because they have measurements. They actually did measure it in the New York Times office uh, because apparently all they care about is Justin Trudeau's hair. And they have some sort of source that not only tells us about Justin's hair, but how we all feel about his hair. Uh, So yeah, it was very, very important to them. Uh, 76 decibels. That source was all Canadians, of course. Corey, same question to you. How loud were the gasps in that newsroom? Uh, I don't know. They... um have they stopped gasping yet? Can we actually say that? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the breathlessness of the New York times about all frivolity is Canadian and this, this just total fictional. I, I want to live in the world of Canada that the New York times describes this whimsical place with all of these crazy ass concerns we have, but you know, they just, I don't know. I, I don't know what the New York times does. They're, they're distressing. Can can we do a whole episode on how much the New York times is off the rails or what? We can, we can. Uh, only after we do an episode of how distressed you are about almost every single item on our list today or lack thereof. Our actual final question, Corey, goes to you and it's a listener question. So for all the complaining that you were doing, we actually have a listener question for you. Like you'd think I'd forget. Okay, this question comes from from us. You're an asshole. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, Donnie Ed, uh, five-star <laughs> review. Thank you so much, Donnie Ed. Uh, of course, that's the only way we read these questions. By the way, I should mention, before we get into the questions, uh, our, our, our promotion, can you call it that, Corey, uh, is that uh, if you leave us five-star review, we may ask your question. Uh, in this case, lucky person is Donnie Ed. Uh, he was the only person to ask us a question, because despite the fact <laughs> That tens of thousands of people uh, saw this ad, uh, you know, several hundred clicked through. Uh, only only Donnie ad asked the question. So I feel like what I'm saying is uh, we need Bat, uh, Brad Parscale on this podcast to really help us with our digital advertising game. Uh, he might be looking he might for be some work. Yeah, he might be looking for some work. 
it could be a great fit. Uh, I wouldn't let him speak. I don't know. He would he would probably <laughs> not know what he's talking about. Uh, okay. So here's a question by Donnie Ed. He says, my question for the mailbag, a huge majority of the social conservatives and especially the Alberta conservatives seem to be voting for Aaron O'Toole in this conservative leadership race. If McKay wins, do you feel like there's going to be a greater chance of a conservative split going forward? Uh, Corey, I'll go to you first because of course it is a listener question. Uh, the pleasure is yours. I, I kind of want to go to Carter first based on the look on his face as you read the question. <laughs> go ahead, Carter. <laughs> There's always a chance of a conservative split. The conservatives cannot help themselves. They do not want to stay together to win. They would rather be apart to lose because that is their natural state. So uh, just as in 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, Preston Manning creates his reform party to bring the West back in. I mean, this is this absolutely hangs over everybody. But I'll tell you something. Here's the truth. It has nothing to do with Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay. It has everything to do with crazy-ass conservatives. They're the crazy people. They've gotten crazier. And uh, that's why they could split. Thank you. <laughs> Another sermon by Carter, twice in one episode. What a lucky Sunday. Corey, finish us off. No, nah, they're not going to do that. It just <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. The, the, the 90s... No, the 80s and 90s thing Carter is talking about was was triggered by very real policy differences. Right now, um, you really have more style differences. As much as Peter McKay um, is probably at his core less conservative than Aaron O'Toole, he's been tripping over himself to prove his conservative bona fides. That was not the case in the late 80s, early 90s. And everybody remembers what it was like being in the wilderness with two conservative parties trying to take out their liberal party, which managed to just get returned to office with 40% of the vote time and time and time again. And so that's just not going to happen. It's, you know, ask me again in 10 years. If this is still a problem in 10 years, maybe. Already, Donnie Ed, you can resubmit your question in a decade. But for the rest of you, leave us a review, <laughs> uh, ask a question, uh, actually ask a question, or else this segment will have literally no legs uh, whatsoever. It'll be a one and done. But we'll leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 807 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time.